You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. My name is Michael. I'm one of the pastors here. Thanks so much for hanging out with us. For real, we love that you're with us today. Um, I don't know if you had, you know, any siblings growing up, um, and maybe you had some other relationships, some cousins, or, uh, you know, a schoolyard bully, or, or anything like that, but, but maybe you can recall a scene like this one that I experienced many times in my life. It would go something like this. My name is Michael, and my brother's name is Nick, all right? So, so uh, let's say he would have me in a, in a headlock. He's a little older than me. Um, so he'd have me in a headlock, and you know my face would be like in his armpit or whatever, and and I'm like, oh, okay, okay, you know, like let me go, mercy, what, whatever. Um, and he and he wouldn't, and then I would say like, you know, fine, you know, I'll, I'll uh, you know, I'll clean your room, or I'll do your chores, or whatever, you know, and and he wouldn't, and, and I'd be like, mom, you know, mom, Nick's, uh, you know, and then fine, so Nick would respond, and and he would probably go something like, fine, you big baby, go tell mom. Right, and and he would uh, release my head from his armpit, and and walk away, and then me being who I am, um, say, yeah, you better walk away, and and you can clean your own room. That's the way that it would go for real. And my brother and I, we got along great. That <laughs> right? was normal stuff or whatever. Um, it's not okay, son. Uh, like a skilled jujitsu champ, like there, you know, you're searching for leverage. And what was he going to do? Like go tell mom that I made a deal that I wasn't like keeping my end of the bargain. And I'd be like, yeah, tell her about the deal I made. Yeah, because you had me in a headlock for 15 minutes, right? So he couldn't do that. So so we both had we, we were on fair ground again, right? Don't we do that though? Pressure makes us react in ways that we might not react. Otherwise, and pressure or crisis or chaos or when we feel out of control, that causes us to make deals that I wouldn't just be like, hey, Nick, do you want me to clean your room or, or do your chores for a week or a few weeks? I, I wouldn't do that. Um, NBA, uh, former NBA star Robert Horry, he says, pressure can, can burst a pipe. Should we see that? In the, the pipe between the men's and women's restroom. That, that happened. Right? That's still happening. We're aware of that. Right? It's not, not for negligence is, is water spilling out into the aisle out there, but we're, we're figuring that out. Okay? So, so pressure can burst a pipe or it can make a diamond. And, and we hear that type of thing all the time. He's proving this point that, that pressure can make or, or break or it can cause you to burst or cause you to shine. And, and one thing is sure about moments of pressure it's that not everyone responds the same way. Everybody's different, and, and some lie, and some fight, and some flight, and some freeze, and you just can't do anything in moments of pressure, but, but if our crisis can be averted, and, and if comfort can be restored, then man, we're quick to make a deal if it's threatening or if it's urgent, and in pressure deals, they're often 
fickle deals. And fickle meaning like just wishy-washy back and forth. And, and you might say yes and then mean no. And so, and so that's, that's what I did with my brother. And that's what we see today. So, so pressure deals are often fickle deals made with one aim. And that's to get us out of the current hurricane or, or whatever it is into a better situation. So we can once again evaluate our commitments with a sober, with a sober mind and say, Okay, what, what did I really mean? And what do I really need out of this? And so when it's, when it's all on the line, and, and we, when we have none of the leverage on our side, man, we, we turn anywhere and we can promise anything and we make these armpit deals like I made, right? And since these deals in, in real life, not just in those situations, but, but when things are emergent and when things are frightening and, and when we're fearful and, and when we would cry out that their life or death or, or they feel that way, we're often drawn outside of ourselves and to the end of ourselves. And, and I'll tell you this, it is a good thing to be drawn outside of ourselves and to the end of ourselves. So that's a great place to start. And so we see things in culture like, like folklore and story and in song. We see deals made with the devil we see that all the time in, in literature and in songs about banjos, right? And in, and in those things, they're usually fueled by, by the pride of life, and it comes at a cost if you lose. But, but more likely in this room, we, we will even make deals with... The, and, and, it, and it often sounds something like this, God, if, if you would just, then I will... There's a guy by the name of Martin Luther. Uh, he made a deal once. And I want to read. Th- this is a book called The Reformation, How a Monk and a Mallet Changed the World. It's not a monk's uh, mullet. So the font is a little weird. So it's how a monk and a mallet changed the world. And so this is about uh, the Reformation. And so if, if you don't understand any of that stuff and how... Uh, we kind of got to the theological position that we are, and we sit under the Word. The church wasn't always that way, and it had some rough goes in the 15th and the 16th century, and there were men and women who fought so, so that we might once again sit under the Word and, and not the hierarchy of, of men of power. And so this was Martin Luther. His dad wanted him to be a lawyer, and, and he was an educated man, and, and he kind of had this draw to go into ministry, but he didn't know what that looked like, and, and here's how that changed. An early turning point in Luther's life came as he traveled back to Erfurt. That's a city, I suppose. Where he had, it's not in Butler County, I don't think. Where he had just taken his master's in law. After visiting his parents in Mansfield, a violent thunderstorm caught up with Luther. He took it to be the very judgment of God upon his soul. Now, we can read that, and it's like, oh, it was raining, and he was... But, but the way he tells this story is he thought his life was ending, right? So he took it to be, in that moment, right or wrong or indifferent, the very judgment of God upon his soul. He clung to the only mediator he knew, or at least the only mediator he dared approach, Saint Anne, the patron, patron saint of minors, his father's profession. He cried out, help me, St. Anne, and I will become a monk. 
Okay? Um, Martin Luther followed through, and he did become a monk. And God used his legitimate but ignorant commitment to change the world. And, and later on, he, knew, he, he found out that, that it wasn't St. Anne that was drawing him to him. It was, it was the one true and living God. Right? And so, uh, there is another historical figure who, who played a different hand than Martin Luther. And, and God responded to him differently, and his, and his name was Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And, and we get to see this today. From his response, we, we get to learn something that can, that can sculpt our fickle, deal-making hearts. And this is what we get to see, that trusting in what God gives is not the same as trusting in who God is. Okay? Those are two different things. Trusting in what God gives is not the same as trusting in who God told the story of God's rescue of his people from, from slavery and captivity in Egypt. Exodus, captives set free. And in last chapter we saw uh, God extend his hand against Pharaoh. And we saw him bring the blood of judgment to all the water in all of Egypt. And we saw Pharaoh just walk away and ignore God completely. And we saw how Jesus' blood brings redemption to all who are in him by faith. And we see that that in God's plans, as, as this all comes together, the day after leap day, we plan this thing a year out. We are preaching about frogs today. For real. That's crazy. So what we see in this text, Exodus chapter 8, uh, we see a setup, and look, for you note takers, I'm going to just talk for like the next 20 minutes, and then we will have two, two points at the end of all that, okay? Kim, Kim hates that, all right? If you ever do this, just give her some points, all right? She loves it. Um, so, so Exodus 1 through 7, it's kind of a setup, and, and we see the same thing. Uh, Moses goes to Pharaoh, and he says, let, let my people go, and, and, and uh, it goes like this. Then, then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, let my people go, that they may serve me. And God is patient. He's patient. We see these plagues and these strikes come, come against Pharaoh in Egypt. But God warns time and time again. And he, he gives an ultimatum because he has all of uh, the upper hand. God does. And he says, let my people go. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. It's so weird. Let into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. This is no joke. I, I didn't make the connection to this, although I was reading through Exodus at the time. About four months ago, I, I had this dream that I walked into my kitchen and there were like a couple little lizards like near the, the coffee maker and stuff, and I was like, ooh. And I turned around, and there were a few more, and, I, and it was just like, it, it was like uh, horrifying in my dream. I woke up like, oh my God, they're in here, okay? They're everywhere. The frogs shall come up on you and your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up 
on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and frogs came up and covered the land. And then this is so weird. But the magicians, they just like the last time, they did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Just think about that just for a second. There are frogs coming up everywhere and they take their staffs and they say, watch, we're going to make some come up from right here. And they're everywhere. And Moses again would say, whose side are you on? If there's any power in you, just make them stop. Make them go back into the river. But they don't do that. Because they can't. So, so what we have to do as we read this, it's like when, when we read the scriptures, we can't begin to, you, you can't apply this. You can't even consider this until you begin to understand the context. And so we say text plus context equals clarity. And so we get to look at some facts and we get to build a case. For me, when I look at this, I'm thinking of like a Little Rascals movie scene where a frog like jumps on the birthday cake and, and the little old ladies, ah! and, and chaos ensues. But it seems to be a little different than that. And so what we have to do is we have to figure out how, how would the Egyptians have viewed this scene. And and I, th- I think that we can draw this conclusion that God is not just messing with Egypt. He's not just like, uh, let's do frogs. He's not doing that. Um, his judgments are, are, are perfect. His justice is strategic. And so, like, if we worshipped, uh, or if God put plagues upon us in this context, what might he go after? I'm guessing he would, he would, he would go after cell towers and Wi-Fi. And he would say, you, you will not continue to worship the things that, that separate you from me. And so we get to understand, what does that look like for them? God is confronting Egypt with two goals in mind that he states repeatedly. And the first one is that he will liberate his people so that they may go and worship him. And the second is so Egypt may know him. So that all of Egypt might know that he is God, and so here's some extra biblical, historical information that just helps us a little bit. One, Egypt prided themselves on sanitation and cleanliness. They were a really, really clean society. And you, you can easily, again, be arrogant and look back and be like, oh yeah, they didn't even know about microbes. How clean could they have been? But here's the thing. It, it is... Uh, alleged that Egypt is the first uh, civilization on earth to have breath mints. And so you don't have breath mints if you're not worried about cleanliness. And so, so they were a clean culture and society. We've already seen that they were very religious, that they worshipped over 90 gods and goddesses. And, and so everything that happened was a reflection of a god or a goddess. And so... Uh, they, they would do things to please the gods, and when things went bad, they would say, oh gosh, what have we done, and, 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 and try to, to please them, right? The, the gods are mad at us. There was one god, uh, goddess named Heket, that's probably horrible, um, but it will help you uh, enough, if it ever shows up on Jeopardy, you'll be able to get it, right? Heket was a particular goddess, and she looked like a frog. She had a human form with a big frog head. That was not being mean, she literally had a frog head, and so... So her job, uh, so, well, because of that, frogs were sacred in the society. 
They were, they were like, uh, like off limits, all right? And so she was, and again, I will stop with the jokes in a minute, but every goddess or god I ever read about in any civilization is like always the fertility goddess and do with life and, and, and multiplication. She, and, and in the story, she was a midwife of, of the creator god, and she helped give birth. She, she brought life into and And so because frogs were a big deal, she kept the frogs within the Nile's bank, but frogs were significant to the culture because so long as frogs were in and around the Nile, that meant the floods were active and the land was fertile and things were healthy. So to demonstrate that God alone was God, he, through these strikes against Egypt, he begins to undo creation. He, he reverses the events of when God made everything. He begins to unravel those things for Egypt. One writer says it this way. When Moses promised that Egypt would teem with frogs, he used the same word that God used on the fifth day of creation. Let the water teem with living creatures. We see that in Genesis 1. So this goddess, uh, Haket, was the goddess of fertility. She was responsible for fruitful multiplication of the creation in that society. Her job was to deliver life and keep the frogs, which represented life, within the banks of the Nile. She could do neither. And the Egyptians began to see themselves in a bind here, incapable of living with all of these frogs, and yet incapable of controlling their fruitful multiplication. They couldn't kill them because they were sacred. And so we would say, just start like torches. I'm not saying do that. I'm just saying we would figure out a way. Hey, I wouldn't do that. I'm just saying we would figure out a way, but they would not figure out a way. So um, God begins to show himself the one true God over all creation, over life, and over death. And and, uh, Charles, there was a suitableness in God's choosing the frogs to humble Egypt's kings. Because frogs were worshipped by that nation as emblems of the gods. Images of a certain frog-headed goddess, I just told you about, were placed in the catacombs, that's like graveyards, kind of. And frogs themselves were uh, preserved with sacred honors. These be the gods, O Egypt. You should have enough of them. Pharaoh himself shall pay a new reverence to these reptiles, as the true God is everywhere present around us in our bedchambers and in our streets, so shall Pharaoh find every place filled with what he chooses to call divine. Is it not a just way of dealing with him? Or maybe in a a simpler term, like if a kid steals a cookie, and you say, did you steal a cookie? And they say, no, and they got the chocolate on their face. And then you sit there and you like make them eat the whole, the whole box of cookies, or you see in in old like teenage movies or whatever, and and you like uh, a teenager gets caught smoking, and so you're going to smoke the whole pack. And I don't want to smoke. Well, you know, and, and that's like you want to worship frogs. I'll give you frogs. So Pharaoh attempted to stop God's people from from being fruitful and multiplying by killing baby boys. Remember, that's how we got to this place. That 
that Pharaoh sent out a thing, and, and he says, these people, the Hebrews are too great, so let's kill all the baby boys. And, and somebody put Moses in the Nile in a basket to save his life. And, and he went, and he came into the house of Pharaoh, and he grew up, and, and here we are, uh, lots of stuff in there later. And so, so Pharaoh attempted to stop God's people from, from being fruitful and multiplying by killing baby boys. And now God was multiplying frogs so much that the goddess of fertility, literally the goddess of life, could not stop them. So God was demonstrating that he alone was the God of fruitful multiplication, and God's people will be free, and they will be fruitful. So Pharaoh and Egypt, they would have... They would have seen all of this and they would have been cut and jabbed and disoriented with the reality that at least, this is only the second strike against them, at least a few of their gods to this point were no match at all for the God of the Hebrews who was content to lead his people from Egypt's grip. See, that's a little helpful context, I think. So, We see the back half of this section of text, verses 8 through 15, and we see a response. Um, Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron. That's the first time he's done that. Like this is like a negotiation. He said this, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. So he sets up a a negotiation, and negotiations begin by by both parties having something to gain. So you would negotiate. Otherwise, it would just be uh, declared and implemented. And so, uh, longer story, but last, uh, last Sunday, a week from today, my car got hit. Um, and, and totaled. And so this week we've been looking for cars and all that stuff. And so, like, talk about negotiation of the worst type. It's trying to buy a car is the worst. And so you sit down and finally find the one that you want. And, and the reality is there's something that, that, that the car salesman wants. He wants me to buy his car. And there's something that I want, and that's I want to buy his car. Then it becomes a matter of leverage. It's always leverage. And I can walk away. And I can say, nope, not going to do that. And, and did at one point. And then, and then does it, like, will he sell the car without my money? And, and so it, it just kind of builds this idea that, that all negotiations have to do with leverage. And Pharaoh thinks he has some. He has God's people. And the leverage he holds is, okay, I will let, I'll let him go. But look, you got to stop this frog stuff because it's out of hand. So I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. And Moses said to Pharaoh, I love this. It's so weird. Be pleased and your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. So, okay, we've come to terms. When would you like me to set up the arrangements? And it's even weirder because Pharaoh says, it shall be tomorrow. And he said, tomorrow, Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. See, that's the point. The frog shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. And what he maybe left out there was the living frogs, okay? 
So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. You would think that if you have bajillions of fish dying, and a week later all these frogs dying, that you would have gnats and flies everywhere. Wouldn't you think that? But we're not there yet. But that's what happens next, right? You get that. And so, and they gathered them together in heaps in the land stank. So good. The land stank. Um, but when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, right, when his brother let him go out of his armpit, he hardened his heart and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. So now we know how, how they would have perceived all this and how Pharaoh responds to his crisis promise. Now we get to kind of reflect how, how we are drawn into the same thing and how we can overcome fickleness by faith in, in giver over gift. Trusting in what God gives is not the same as trusting in who God is. The first thing we get to see is this. We are never more prone to pray than when under pressure. Now, I'm using the word pray because we don't see Pharaoh pray directly to God, but he uses a mediator and he turns towards God and he begins to communicate to God. And so uh, that's, that's why I'm using that word. And so we're, we're never more prone to pray than when under pressure. And, and that's okay. Like, if you turn to God when your world crashes in, that is a good thing. That is, that is a beautiful thing. You should do that. But if it's the only time you turn to God, that is a problem. If, if it's the only thing that you got, or if you find yourself uh, praying, and then, and then when, when the situation relents, you find yourself withdrawing from Him, when things heart in you that you should not ignore. Darren Patrick in the book Church Planter, he, he says this of private prayer. He says, private prayer is the revealer of the true spiritual condition of the human heart. Which is tough to handle. He says, do we pray privately for what God might do for us or for a better understanding of God? Do we pray to get closer to a better, easier, more comfortable life? Or do we pray to get closer to God? It's a, a perfectly fitting question for Pharaoh, this line of questioning. And the answer is obvious. Pharaoh just wants what God has to offer. And it's a perfectly fitting line of questions for, for us. And the answer might not be so obvious. Think, think of a time when you've turned to God because of your circumstances. Like, we've probably, many of us have done that. That's okay to do. But if we just sift a bit and ask some questions of that, um, what were we praying for? What were we asking God to do? 
Where did your heart turn? What was the condition of your if-then request? What were the terms of the negotiation? God, if you, then I promise. God, I know that this might be, but this is the last time that I'm going to. Or if you would just save, make well, heal. If you would just do this for me just this one time. Then you, then you have all of me forever. If, then. Leverage. God, I have something that you want. But you've got to play the game. How did the situation work out? What if it had gone another way? How did you respond afterwards have you have you made deals with god and 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 followed through have you made deals with god and 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 failed to follow through look i know that for some of you these these questions are are tough and and god is not afraid of the answers Forget crisis prayers for a moment. Forget, you know, crisis promises for a moment. Consider what you've committed to God in general. Just in the general of your life, what has God called the church to be? What has God called you into? And in it's... I know there are people in this room who've never committed to follow Jesus. That you've never at any point in your life said, you know what, I, I'm broken, I'm a sinner because of... of my rebellious heart against a good and holy God, and I will not turn, I will not repent, I will not believe, and I certainly will not follow him. Fine. I, I'm glad that you're here. For real. Thank you for being here. But for those of you who, who have done that in your life, what did that look like? What did it look like when you said, I will follow you, was it, was it conditional on your end that, that God might eliminate all of the frogs from your life, for all of life until eternal life? Do you face disillusion about how God has met or failed to meet your expectations? Of what you thought he would deliver to you? And just back up a little more. How and when do you pray? If, if you are in Christ, and, and if today you would say, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. I'm saved by, by faith in His grace through the work of Christ according to this book for His glory. Look, what do your prayers look like? What does it look like for you to turn to God? My guess is, and look, this is not an indictment against you, because I'm on a... On a pedestal that's eight inches higher than where you're at this is me as well what do my prayers look like my guess is the majority is in response to a need or to a situation um, and and what what god wants to show us is that we might have everything our hearts could ever desire that everything could could that that by god's grace 
or by his judgment, you could have everything you've ever wanted. And if you're not walking with God, you have nothing. That's cover to cover in this book. That's the essence of a life in Christ. That you can have it all and have nothing. You can have nothing but Christ alone and have everything. So today we we get to evaluate when we turn, where we turn, and, and just for, for me, this, this line of thinking is an encouragement. What if we turn to God with, with thanks more than requests? And, and it's fine for a kid to say, hey, Dad, can I, can I have five bucks? Hey, 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 Dad, can I have whatever? Can I have whatever? But, but look, if, if all that ever is, is just asking and asking and asking, there's no, hey, I desire to be in the same room with you. And like, we get it, kids, and whatever. But if in the scheme of life, all you are is just, just asking, asking, asking. It, it's not, it's not a, a dad that that kid wants. It's, it's a genie. And when we treat God that way, man, that's That's dangerous. Trusting in what God gives is, is not the same as trusting in who God is. There's not a better place to turn to evaluate whether we are, we are sworn to gift or giver than, than to sift the prayers in our life. The second thing and the last thing is this. No matter how that pressure forms your prayer... God weighs the heart. If you've ever flown, you've, you've been through security and TSA and all that. And, and from the time, if you're flying out of the country, then you have to get secure passport and, and you get to the airport and, and they take your luggage and they, they sift through that and they make sure that everything's good in there and, and everything's safe in there and then you have to show ID and then you have to print tickets and the tickets have to match your ID and they scan that and then you get to somebody else and then you do the, the, the 360 body scan thing. It's like a, a vulnerable position because, look, it doesn't matter what you're wearing. It doesn't matter what your skin looks like. They're looking just right through you to see what they need to see. And in your luggage, you can have liquids inside of bottles, inside of bags, inside of, uh, inside of luggage, and all of it is just laid bare for them. They can see right through it, but here's the deal. God, He doesn't have to put us through a process to see exactly what He needs to see inside of us. In the beginning of this book, Adam and Eve, they were naked and they were unashamed. God had made them. And they, they sinned against God. And they ran and they hid behind some bushes and they, they made some clothes for themselves out of fig leaves. And God like played this game like, where are you at? Where are you at? I don't see you anywhere. And he knew where they were. And they came out and they said, we, we were scared and we hid because we were naked. And he says, well, who, who told you you were naked? God knew where Adam and Eve 
we're hiding, right? He knows us and he knows what we posture, what we put, what we put up front, what we try to, to keep God or others at bay. He knows all of that. He knows you infinitely more than you know you. Emotions, physical stuff, cells moving, all of the things. In 1 Corinthians, Paul says, At a point in time, God will bring to light what's hidden in darkness. And he will expose the motives of the heart. He will expose the motives of the heart. We read in in Proverbs 21, the heart. What that means is before God, we are laid bare. There's no pretending. There's no performing. There's no duping. There's no trickery. None of that can veil the eyes of God to see us as we are. He isn't swayed by false promises. And you can never fool or pretend your way to manipulating God. He was on to Pharaoh And he's on to us. This means that that whatever God thinks of you, despite whatever promises you've ever made to him, it's in light of full disclosure. Whatever God thinks of you, it's because... He knows you better than you know you. And, and, in, and in this is complete liberty in who God is, despite who we are. But, and even more dangerously, we can even fool ourselves. Who knows where Pharaoh's head is in this And this happens repeatedly. Uh, Were his intentions pure in the moment that he legitimately said, this is too terrible, I have to to let him go. I have to give him what he wants. I'm I'm going to let him go, right? But then he just wasn't able to to kind of count the cost of forsaking his his, uh, lifestyle and and political failure and his cultural identity uh, and all those things. We don't know. Was his plan to forsake the deal all along? It's possible that he had no intention to relent or, or he just always planned to recant his commitment. We just don't know. But we do know that God wasn't fooled for one single millisecond. But what I also think is that Moses probably was. Based on what we see in this text, it seems like Moses said, this is it, finally, finally, gosh. God's doing what he said, and, and guys, get ready. We got, we're, we're ready to go. He's going to let us go. God did the thing, and he extended his hand in judgment. The frogs got him, yes. If he didn't believe that, I don't think that he, uh, he would have endorsed Pharaoh's repentance before God, which is what, what Moses did. God, please, he pleaded with him. He cried to God, relent. Why would he do that if he didn't believe Pharaoh? But here's the thing. There are men and women in this room trying to fool those around them. 
you don't have to do that. You, you don't have to do that. You are bringing upon you chains of slavery. And, and what God desires is, is that you would be free. You'd be free from pretending. Free from performing. You, you don't have to do that, and, and you will never fool God. Your assumptions are amiss because you think of God in terms of yourself. And the reality is, on our very best days, we are not that great. So, so when you get... Uh, when you find yourself in that position, you think that you have leverage over God if you just do all the things you, you never do. God will, will not be coerced. So what we get to do is, is joyfully, genuinely, with, with nothing to gain, throw ourselves at Jesus. And when we do that, we gain everything. So as we reflect on our actions and our heart, we get to dig and determine if our relationship with God is based upon us who are fickle or Him who is faithful. And what we read in the Scripture is that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and He is just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And when He does that, by His work, not ours, he calls us son, he calls us daughter, invites us into his arms, into his family. He begins to cultivate our hearts to shape us for his glory. And when we live for his glory, we find our greatest joy. So maybe your relationship with a plea deal or, or some crisis confession or some youth group moment of emotion when, when you stepped forward because all of your friends were and, 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 and maybe you've been uh, raised in a, in a Christian home and, and, and you, you know that church is what you're just supposed to do. Or maybe you're in the middle of a, God, if you, then, then I will. Maybe you're in, in, right in the middle of one of those and you're just waiting for him to deliver and to cater to your demands. No matter where this finds you, I invite you to take freedom in this psalm today. And this psalm is 139, and this is what it says. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. What it means is, is that we get to be known and we get to invite God to inspect us. He doesn't have to do that for him. He's not the TSA. We invite him to do that for us. So that he can lead us into the way of life. God, God isn't looking for leverage to hold you, slave. He's, your, your relationship with him on his end is not, hey, remember when you were, you know, uh, a kid? Remember when you were eight years old and you said that? I'm holding you to that. God is not a God of technicality. He wants your heart, all of it. 
Trusting in what God gives is not the same as trusting in who God is. And, and no matter what led you here, whether it was fickle or fake or fragile commitment or please, today we get to shed that and trust not just the gifts of God, but so we get to respond to that. We get to pray right where you are. You can pray by that prayer bench over there if you just need some time to yourself. There'll be a few people by that red tree back there, and there'll be a few by that red tree. We would love to pray with you about anything, physical, spiritual, emotional, response to any of this stuff. We invite you to, to, to be a part of the family and to the mission. We invite you to be a part of, of God's family by trusting Jesus today if you never have. We invite you to be a part of this family by, by this family, and we can help you get connected and, and serving and, and all those things. And, and for those who are in Christ, we get to respond by remembering that all of this freedom comes from the death of Jesus. So we take the bread and the drink uh, in remembrance and as an opportunity to declare the broken body of Jesus and the blood that was spilt on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Father, what a weird thing that you did on this day in Egypt. We know that your plans are perfect and your, your will and your ways are just. Thanks for just showing us a glimpse of ourselves by, by revealing a little bit about Pharaoh and, and Egypt. Frogs. God, would you let every man, woman, and child in this building today leave free, guilt-free, because that's what you died to liberate us from. You died a sinner having never sinned so that we sinners might walk in your righteousness. Let us live in response to your love for us. May we live for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.